I want to um, take you into the Gospel of Luke today. We're going to be considering one of the parables that Jesus told in the chapter, the 15th chapter of Luke's Gospel. Now, for those of you who are um, streaming in via the live stream, you're welcome to, um, if you scroll down underneath the description of the video, you'll see the text that we're going to be reading. If you have a Bible, then open it, but otherwise you can read there on your screens. I'm going to read to you... um, Just a section, actually, of this particular parable. Um, Lord willing, I want to revisit it next week and finish off the story. But I want to read to you from the very famous parable of the prodigal son. And it begins in the 15th chapter, the 11th verse of Luke's gospel, like this. It says, And he said, There was a man who had two sons. The younger of them said to his father, Father, give me the share of the property that is coming to me. And he divided his property between them. Not many days later, the younger son gathered all he had and took a journey into a far country. And there he squandered his property in reckless living. And when he had spent everything, a severe famine arose in that country and he began to be in need. So he went and hired himself out to one of the citizens of that country who sent him into his fields to feed pigs. And he was longing to be fed with the pods that the pigs ate And no one gave him anything. But when he came to himself, he said, How many of my father's hired servants have more than enough bread, but I perish here with hunger? I will arise and go to my father, and I will say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Treat me as one of your hired servants. And he arose and came to his father. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and felt compassion and ran and embraced him and kissed him. And the son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his servants, bring quickly the best robe and put it on him. Put a ring on his hand and shoes on his feet and bring the fattened calf and kill it. Let us eat and celebrate, for this my son was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found, and they began to celebrate. I want to begin with the question of how real change takes place in our lives. How does real lasting transformation take effect in our lives? We're all conscious that we are growing through life and that we're changing Um, sometimes very incrementally and sometimes in more significant ways in life. But what is it that brings about or induces a moment of change in your life? How do you start again if you feel that need to sort of, as it were, go back to a junction and take a different course? How is it that you change direction in your life? How do new beginnings take place? Very often, one of the um, answers that you'll discover the longer you live is that this change is really frequently brought about through the, express of the experience of suffering and through the crises that you encounter in your life, that real change can happen at a moment when you are most exposed and most experiencing the turmoil and upheaval of your life. Now, this is something that's been recognized even by um, contemporary scientists and thinkers and psychologists. It's called the adversity hypothesis. There's one writer who described it really well like this. He said, when tragedy strikes, 
it knocks you off the treadmill and forces a decision. Hop back on and return to business as usual or try something else. Trauma often shatters belief systems and robs people of their sense of meaning. In so doing, it forces people to put the pieces back together. Two brilliant metaphors there for what happens to us in these unexpected moments in life. One of them is that you are on a treadmill. And very often in your life, you, know, you are passing the days, the weeks, the months, the years, almost thoughtlessly engaged with the thing that you're currently doing. And it's very hard to change direction when, you're just, when your life is stuck in that way until something comes from the side left and knocks you off course. And at that point, you do have an opportunity. You do have a choice. You have a moment in life when you can make a change. Do you get back on or do you change direction? It also describes it as this kind of crumbling that can happen. It's like a Lego construction. You know, you, if you break the thing apart, you get a choice at that point how you're going to put the thing back together. Now, this is not something that's only been discovered recently, of course. This is an idea and an understanding that's been layered into human wisdom since the dawn of time, and certainly is there all the way through Scripture, that we see some of the greatest transformations take place in the lives of men and women of God through the Bible at moments of deep hardship and crisis in their life, and you see them then changing direction. You see something new happening. And it might be the death of an old thing and the beginning of a new thing. Sometimes those changes are for the, for the better. Sometimes for the, they're for the worse. But either way, these moments inevitably bring about transformation in our lives. The Apostle Paul called it, when he wrote these words in Romans 5, he said that we rejoice in our sufferings, knowing that suffering produces endurance, and endurance produces character, and character produces hope. In other words, there are certain things that cannot happen in your life except through the experience of crisis or suffering or trauma or something, some kind of adversity. That without these things, in other words, you remain as you are and your growth can be stunted. And sometimes these things can be very personal, can be a relationship that's lost. You know, when love comes to an end and and, uh, a relationship breaks down, it can cause you to turn inwards and examine what did I do wrong? Where have I gone wrong? You lose your job and you, you look at your life. You reassess your, your time and your direction. You consider where I'm going in life and whether you're really on the path that you want to be on. Someone that you know dies of a disease like cancer. You know, these moments when you see suffering take place in, in loved ones and family members are a moment of crisis that induces a change in you. You have an opportunity. Sometimes it's a narrow window of opportunity, but there is an opportunity at that point when actual real substantial change can happen there in a way that's faster and more lasting than at any other points in your life. Perhaps when a global pandemic hits, when you get to reassess everything that's happening in you and around you, things that you've been living for, the direction that you've been on up to now, and you get to re-examine your life and consider in the midst of crisis, there's opportunity. Now, I'm saying all this, of course, because I think this is very generally true. It's true across the board, all people everywhere. But I think it's also a very powerful dynamic in the spiritual life, and this is what I want us to think about. I could state this both negatively and positively. The negative way of stating this is like this, that without these experiences in life, if you know nothing but comfort and ease and security in your day-to-day life, 
you'll find that you don't have the opportunity that will induce spiritual growth and strength and muscle and faith and stature in your walk with God. The danger is that no matter, you know, living an easy life, whatever your ease is caused by, but Jesus described this particularly on numerous occasions, actually, particularly in terms of wealth. He said, for example, in in Mark chapter 10, how difficult it will be for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom of God. He said a little bit further on, children, how difficult it is to enter the kingdom of God. It's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than it is for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. And Jesus was not against wealth. But he was saying that what wealth does is it can shield us from the exposures in life that bring about change. And one of the things it shields us from is a sense of spiritual need. Jesus said it elsewhere. For example, in Luke's Gospel, chapter 6, he said, Woe to you who are rich, for you have received your consolation. Woe to you who are full now, for you shall uh, be hungry. Woe to you who laugh now, for you shall mourn and weep. In other words, he's saying these woes. He's saying when, all, when your life is surrounded by comforts, wealth, ease, um, laughter, he says all the sorrow in life will be reserved for the next life, essentially, because there won't be anything in the here and now to bring about a crisis, to bring about a sense of desperation, to bring about a moment of transformation and of change. This is a danger of living a comfortable life. And I think it's a very particular danger for us living in the Western world because our lives are so surrounded by comfort. So I'm not just speaking here to those of you who are relatively more wealthy. This is true for all of us, really. That our lives are so often surrounded by comforts and by relative ease that this then explains the spiritual apathy that we see everywhere and that we see in our own hearts. A real danger that Jesus put his finger on repeatedly. We can be indifferent to the things of God. We can fail to reflect upon deeper spiritual realities. That's one way of putting it, the negative side. But the positive side, of course, is the point I'm driving at today, which is that a crisis may well be the best thing that ever happens to you in life. You may look back on it, And even if it was painful in the moment, things that you wish you could change there and then, you'll look back in the months or years to come and you'll say, that was the point at which God did a work in me and brought about a change in me that was lasting, that actually changed the direction of my life. C.S. Lewis described it in this way in his book about pain. He said, God whispers to us in our pleasure, speaks to us in our conscience, but shouts in our pains. Hear that again. He whispers in your pleasures. The good things in life are gifts from him, and God speaks to you in them about his goodness and his love and his tender mercies. But we often don't hear because it's a whisper. He speaks in our conscience. You know when your conscience is either excusing or accusing you, as Paul puts it, but God's voice is heard in it. But he said, God shouts to us in our pains. He says it is his megaphone to rouse a deaf world. It removes the veil. It plants the flag of truth within the fortress of the rebel soul. I was drawn to this particular story in Luke 15 because it really shows us the full journey of what this looks like. Jesus is the great physician, the doctor who understands the human soul. And in his understanding of 
our spirituality and of our tendencies. He tells this story which really charts the full journey of this boy who goes from various chapters in his life from a place of total comfort and ease to a point where he's kind of modeling on his desires and they're beginning to awaken in him and he wants more in life and he wants to pursue this kind of life of hedonism. And then he, he charts the story all the way through to this kind of crisis, this moment of tragedy and suffering and trauma, which is the point at which his life truly changes for the better. And I find this fascinating because I've seen this in my own life. I've seen this in the lives of many others. And I think that we're in a collective moment right now. We've already seen in the last eight, nine months, various people whose lives have been changed because of the crisis we're in. This is not yet over. In fact, it could be a long way from being totally over. And there is still this window of opportunity. I think God has induced this moment for us. And I want us to think about this. Now, what I want to do in order to think about what God could be doing in your life right now, I want us to chart the story of this boy in a few chapters. We can't deal with the entire story today. It's too rich and too multifaceted to think about everything that's going on here. But I want to chart the course of his journey right up to when he turns back to his father, representative, of course, of us turning back to God. Now, here's the first chapter, then, of what happens in his life. What I want to describe as his kind of descent into sin. Look again at verse 11. It says, And he said there was a man who had two sons. The younger of them said to his father, Father, give me me the share of the property that's coming to me. And he divided his property between them. Not many days later, the younger son gathered all that he had and took a journey into a far country. And there, he squandered his property in reckless living. Now, where do this boy's troubles begin? We see where he ends up. Jesus says that he ends up in this state of having squandered everything. His father has obviously built up a certain amount of wealth through a life of hard work. And he gives his boy half of that wealth, what is his inheritance. And the boy goes and squanders a whole lot frivolously and recklessly spending. Jesus describes, he uses this phrase, reckless living doesn't tell us there and then what the boy's been up to, but his younger brother fills in the details later in the story, his brothers are wont to do, and describes him as having spent it on prostitutes. So you get the image, don't you, the picture of what's been going on in this boy's life. Wealth without responsibility has led to nothing but this indulgence and this pleasure-seeking, this hedonism that's led to this recklessness and stupidity and folly that ultimately has brought him into this state of debauchery, I suppose, is the right word. But that is not the root of what went wrong in the boy's life. Where's the root of it? Where do you see the start of all this? And I would say that, listen, this is very important. The root of where this boy goes wrong is something that begins in his heart, when he makes an exchange. On the one hand, he has all the benefits of having grown up with this loving father. He's got a father who has provided for him and offered a home and security and an opportunity for work and for, and for providing in the, as he grows up. And he has all these things. And he holds all of that in the balance. And he decides to trade all of that in. You see how... He comes to his father so brazenly and says, give me the share of the property that's due to me. Which, of course, is the same as saying, I wish that you were dead. 
How is it that he could trade all of that in? Even the love of his father, even the relationship of this secure home, everything that he's known and loved up till then. He says, I wish that all of it, I want to trade it all in in order to what? To gain what? The answer is that he, he, does, he trades it all in in order to gain the promise of fulfillment through desire. That at some point, we don't know exactly when, but there is a, an exchange that happens in his heart where he weighs all of the benefits of being at home. And he says, none of that is worth it compared to what I could do if I just had the opportunity. The pleasures that are out there in the world. And he says, all of that is worth more to me than this, so I'm going to trade this in in order to get that. And that's where his problems begin. It's not out there when he's living the life. It's right in his heart. The decision begins somewhere way back when in his heart. This is the root from which the fruits are later born. This is how the Bible always describes the trajectory of sin. It's always very interested. The scriptures are interested in, in how these things take place in our hearts before they take place in action. The motivations and inclinations and the belief systems of your heart that drive you a certain way instead of another way. The book of James puts this very vividly in terms of using the metaphor of pregnancy. And it puts it like this. He says, each person is tempted when he's lured and enticed by his own desire. Then desire, when it's conceived, like a baby in the womb, gives birth to sin. And sin, when it's fully grown, brings forth death. Now, where does the problem begin? It doesn't begin with the birth or even with the conception. It begins with the desire. It begins with the calculation, the exchange that takes place in your heart. You say, that is better than this. So it happens with this boy's journey. Now what we see next, of course, is something that you'll all be familiar with. What does he do upon receiving all this money? Jesus tells us, the younger son gathered all he had and took a journey into a far country. What Jesus is showing us so vividly is the reality that all of us are are conscious of, which is that when you are heading on a path that you know is displeasing to God and displeasing to even your own conscience, what do you do? You run away. He knows that there are certain things that he, he can't do in front of his father. So what does he have to do? He has to get away from his father, go far away. Away from the judgment, away from the watching eyes, away from the people who might otherwise call him to account for the way he's living. He has to get far away. And this is exactly the trajectory that each of us goes on when we're wandering away from God. We know that God is holy and righteous. And we know that the things we want to do, we can't do in his face, as it were, before him. So we have to turn our back. And then we have to find a dark place, a secret place, a hidden place, a place away from the watching eyes of community, accountability, and most of all of the Father. In John's Gospel, this tendency within the human heart that exists, I think, in all of us as a temptation is described in this way. He says, the light has come into the world. He's talking about the presence of the Lord Jesus Christ. He says, but the people love the darkness rather than the light because their works were evil. 
For everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not come to the light, lest his work should be exposed. He's saying when you know that you're walking a path that, that has gone, is going very badly wrong, you want to avoid the gaze of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ. That we like the dark places, we like the secret places, we like the hidden places. I want to ask you, maybe you're in that place now. Are you, do you find yourself, spiritually speaking, in a dark place, away from the, the gaze of your Father in heaven, away from his presence in a far country, having wandered away? This is the first episode of this boy's life, this descent into sin, which begins as a desire, but then it gives birth to sin and death. Let's go on into the second state, the second chapter, episode of his life. We pick it up in verse 14. It says, when he had spent everything, a severe famine arose in that country and he began to be in need. So he went and hired himself out to one of the citizens of that country who sent him into his fields to feed pigs. And he was longing to be fed with the pods that the pigs ate, and no one gave him anything. Now, this is what I want to describe as the the kind of state of loss. It's the destination of where sin takes you is into this place of loss, where you lose things. Where does this boy's sin lead him? The answer is not where it promised. Sin seduced him with the promise of a never-ending party, of pleasures that would, could not be exhausted, of bliss in self-indulgence. And this is what drew the boy into this lifestyle. It's the same lie that we all believe when we wander from God and, and begin to do things that we know are displeasing to him. Sin t- seduced him with that lie. Did it take him there? The answer is no. This is a quote C.S. Lewis again. He put it like this. He described... what temptation and what sin and what lust does to you in the end. He describes it as an ever-increasing craving for an ever-diminishing pleasure. The craving grows like a dragon inside you, hungry for more and more, but less and less able to be satiated by the pleasures that you indulge and by the sin which has gotten hold of you. And so this is what the Bible describes as a state of being in slavery to our desires, to our flesh, to our indulgence. This is where the boy is at this point. Sin inevitably brings us into this place of worse and worse progression. This is my, uh, my argument to you today, where you may even be yourself, spiritually speaking. And I want you to see how at this point, inevitably, we could have predicted this, It leads to a place of having lost everything. He loses his money, first of all. Jesus says when he'd spent everything. That's only the surface of his problems. You can lose your money and still be in good shape spiritually. But this, of course, is just the beginning of his problems. What else has he lost? He's lost his security. You think back to his life upon the farm with his father. What did he know? He knew nothing but, but having all of his needs met every day for all of his life up to that point. And the love and protection and blessing of his father over him. This is what it is like for the Christian living close to God. 
But now Jesus tells us that having lost all his money, it says a severe famine arose in that country and he began to be in need. You see what's going on, don't you? It's not just the problem, it's not just that he's lost all his money. The problem at this point is he's also lost the security, the blanket of protection that his father gave to him, the blessing and favor of God. And he finds himself in a place of exposure to the elements, exposure to the famine that's hit the land. He has no, nothing on which he can fall back, no protection, no covering. He's totally isolated and insecure and alone in this situation. And I suspect that is exactly where many people have found themselves, spiritually speaking, in this particular time that we're in. When life was going on as normal, you could delude yourself that you were happy and that things were good because you had your job to go to, your friends to be with, your social life, the pleasures, the fun that we indulge. And when all of those things were taken away, what happens then? You find yourself, much as this boy found himself in a place of famine, you find yourself in a state of exposure. And this tells you what you really have or do not have in life. It tells you whether you have a place of safety and refuge in the Father's house or whether actually you're exposed with need and weakness and frailty, spiritual frailty, this insecurity. He loses his security. And this may well be something that resonates with many of us. Take everything away, all the surface things away, and you realize what you have left. And for some, they've come to the honest acknowledgement that when everything is, all the superficial things are taken away from their lives, they're left with nothing. He also then loses his dignity. Jesus tells us, that having found himself in this place of famine with nothing, that he went and hired himself out to one of the citizens of that country who sent him into his fields to feed pigs. Now, of course, the fact that he's found a job is not the problem here. He grew up on a farm. He's drawn back to agriculture. It makes perfect sense on the surface of things. The problem here, of course, is what every Jewish person knew listening to this story the problem is the job that he's found himself in which is the feeding of the pigs now I know that this is kind of lost on us certainly emotionally it's lost on us even if you know intellectually that the Jewish people consider pigs to be unclean according to the law the food laws emotionally it doesn't really hit home does it we don't really understand the depths to which this boy has sunk Because we don't have these categories of clean and unclean in our world anymore. Let me try and get this across to you so you understand in ways that I think we would would begin to comprehend the darkness to which he's descended. I read recently a story in the news of a factory in Vietnam. The police raided this place because inside this factory... The business was the recycling of condoms. Hundreds of thousands of them, tons and tons of them, finding their way back into circulation. An illicit business, of course. Now, the thought in and of itself is nauseating enough, isn't it? And this is the kind of reaction Jesus wanted his hearers to hear when they hear about this boy's job. Imagine the people working there. Why why do you end up working in a factory like that? It's not because you grew up as a little boy or little girl dreaming of this. 
It's because you're desperate, right? There's no other avenue. You're in a jobless society, perhaps, or where there's no opportunities, and this is where you find yourself, in something nauseating. This brings about a sense of shame. And this is where the boy finds himself, with the pigs. And this is what sin does to us. It strips us of dignity. It strips us of any self-respect we have. It makes us feel dirty and unclean and disgusting. It makes you feel ashamed of yourself. So he's lost his money, he's lost his security, he's lost his dignity. Ultimately also he lost all the love and relationships that made his life worth living. Jesus tells us that having found himself in this place of feeding pigs, it says he was longing to be fed with the pods that the pigs ate and no one gave him anything. Where are all the friends that he was enjoying in his days of recklessness? Well, we see what the friendships are worth, don't we, at this point? These were fair-weather friends, friends that were only interested in spending time with him when they were on this mutual crusade for pleasure-seeking. But of course, when you find yourself in a state of need, this is when you discover whether the relationships around you are really worth anything. And he's abandoned the true relationships in his life with his father, with his siblings. And he finds himself totally alone. He finds himself in a state of total loss. He's lost everything. Now, friends, the hard news that I have to tell you, of course, is that he has found himself a victim of an unbreakable spiritual law that God has layered into his universe, which is that you reap what you sow. And Paul put this in very clear language in Galatians 6 when he said this. Do not be deceived. God is not mocked. For whatever one sows, that will he also reap. The one who sows to his own flesh, which is the indulgence of desire, illicit desire, will from the flesh reap corruption. But the one who sows to the Spirit will from the Spirit reap eternal life. In other words, the one who sows to the spiritual life and to God will from that reap eternal life. This boy finds himself on the wrong side of that equation, as it were, that spiritual law. He finds himself in this dark place where he's lost everything because he's done nothing but sow to the flesh for all this time that he's been away. Friends, even though that is the hard news, listen, there is also goodness in that. In that this is the gift of God to him to bring him to this place where everything in his life that was distracting and giving him temporary pleasure and temporary happiness, all of that's taken away. And this is God's design. In a way, he'd be in a worse state if he was able to be in a perpetual party to the end of his life. Some people find themselves in that state of comfort and having all their needs met, and it's only really on their deathbed, if they have any opportunity on a deathbed to reflect for any length of time, that they suddenly wake up and realize... This boy has the advantage of having met this, this, this rock bottom early on. Of where sin takes you and what it does to you and how it destroys you and how it strips you of everything good in your life. And this is where he finds himself, in the pit, in the darkness. 
God has brought about a crisis, in other words. And he may be doing that in your life. He may well do it in the days to come. And this brings us to the final chapter of what I want us to consider today, which is the moment of repentance. This is where the light begins to shine in his heart again. And Jesus puts it like this. He says, but when he came to himself, he said, how many of my father's hired servants have more than enough bread? But I perish here with hunger. I will arise and go to my father and I'll say to him, Father, I've sinned against heaven and before you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. Treat me as one of your hired servants. Now when he reaches this state of being in this absolute dereliction and darkness, there are many wrong ways his heart could have turned at that point. It could have turned, for example, into self-pity. How many people, when they're in a moment of crisis or of suffering or of tragedy, wallow in self-pity? Where does it lead? It doesn't lead you anywhere good. He could have found himself blaming everyone around him. He could have blamed God. God, why have you let me suffer like this? He could have blamed his parents. You know, how many people, when they make bad choices in life, blame it all? They go to counseling so they can discover how it was all their parents' fault. He could have blamed his father. If my father had done this or that, then maybe I wouldn't have found myself in this position. He could have given way to despair. I'm sure the thought must have crossed his mind, the temptation to end it all. He could have, in a shameful way, he could have gone back and asked for more. We all know stories like this, don't we? Where a person who's in the gutter goes and asks others for more so they can carry on dwelling in the gutter. But instead, what you see is the marks of true repentance in his life. This is where he turns around. Jesus puts it like this. He determines, I will arise and go to my father and I'll say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and against you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. Even if he could have taken all these wrong directions, his heart chooses the right one, which is this. Confession and coming back. Confession is a hard, hard, hard thing to do properly. To confess without excuses. To confess without defensiveness. To confess confess without the, the use of euphemisms. You know how we do this? We say, oh, I made a mistake. Or I messed up. Or I was stupid. This is all euphemisms to kind of smooth over the wickedness of the things that you've done. Or that you've indulged in. He, he doesn't do that. He says, I have sinned against heaven and against earth. This is where you come face to face with the full magnitude of the choices you've made and you recognize them for the dark and wicked and evil things that they are and you don't try and hide it anymore. This is true confession. And how does a person get to a point where they're able to be like that, where their heart can choose that kind of course? And I want to suggest to you that there are three fortresses that had to fall in his heart at this point. And this is where we're going to close, friends. Three fortresses that had to tumble down in order to enable him to truly repent. The first is that the lie of lust had to fall. 
Now this is a problem because so often when you're caught in the hedonistic treadmill, the spiral of desiring more for an ever-diminishing pleasure, you still haven't seen through the lie. You may even come to regret and despise the things you've done to this point, but you still believe the lie, which is that if I just keep going, eventually I'll find that pot at the end of the rainbow or whatever, however you want to think of it. Which is why you keep going. It's why you persist in sin. The Bible uses vivid language to describe that, that problem in the heart. How we can go back to things again and again. It says in Proverbs 26, for example, that like a dog that returns to his vomit. Have you ever seen a dog do that? Vomit and then lick it all back up again. Like a dog that returns to his vomit is a fool who repeats his folly. This is the kind of thing we do when we haven't seen through the lie. We don't recognize it for what it is. Well, this boy, he sees through it. And so the first fortress tumbles down. Jesus says that when he came to himself, it was like a moment of awakening in his life where he suddenly saw everything in its right perspective and true proportion. And he realized that all that he'd given up were the things of true value and the things he'd gained were as nothing, were like dust falling through his hand. He comes to this moment of realization which says, how many of my father's hired servants have more than enough bread to eat? He remembers back and realizes that even if he didn't fulfill all of his pleasures and lusts back then when he lived with his father on the farm, he was satisfied He was content in his day-to-day life. He had everything he needed. So the first lie has to fall, which is the lie of lust. The way Satan always traps us is with that lie. Always, every time, it's with that lie. The second lie that has to fall is the, uh, the second fortress that has to fall in his heart is the fortress of pride. You see, even when you find yourself in a place where you know that all your poor choices have led you into a dark place, into a dark alleyway. Even then, such is the human heart that we can resist coming back to God, turning to Him immediately. Simply because pride lurks in us. It's a powerful barrier. But this boy, you see how totally he can abase himself, how he can humble himself, how he has to come back to the people he's known and loved, empty-handed, wearing nothing but rags. Then knowing that he's gone and recklessly spent everything that he's inherited, but he's willing to do it. He's willing to totally humble himself in order to come home. He says, I will arise and go to my father. The third fortress that has to fall is your false view of God. Now, even if you've awoken awoken to the truth, the lie of lust and the pride in your heart is dismantled and you're a place of true humility and desperation. You know, you know that you need to be back in the Father's house. You need to come back to God. Even then, it can be hard to come home for the simple reason that you might not believe that God could or would have you back. 
I find it so interesting that when this boy plans this speech in his mind, and he conceives of how he could possibly find his way back into his father's household, he underestimates the love of his father, doesn't he? He says, I'm not worthy to be called your son. Make me like one of your hired servants. He's willing to take the lowest place in the house just in order to be back under his father's protection and favor in some small way. But he vastly underestimates the love of his father for him. This is the the true heart of what Jesus is telling us in this story. It's the Father's actions, the Father's embrace, the Father's compassion and love and desperation to see his child. And how he tells us then, it says he arose and came to his father. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and felt compassion. He was moved in his gut, not with anger. Not with resentment, not with bitterness or unforgiveness towards his son, not with judgment, not with frustration. He felt compassion and he ran and embraced him and kissed him. I want to close and just ask this question, friends. Is God waking you up? You may have gone through all of your life to this point in a state of spiritual slumber. This could be true of you if you are not a Christian. You've never really been awake to your spiritual need. And the fact that you need to come home to the Father who made you. It's also tragically true for those of us who are Christian. I think in some ways the heart of this, this parable is talking about the person who has known God and then wanders off. And I know and have seen this play itself out too many times to doubt that I know there are people in our church who are in that position even right now. It may even be because of the situation we're in. You thought, well, if God's not looking after me, if I find myself in this place of pain and loneliness and isolation, well, I might as well just... Do this, that, and the other. My question to you is, is God waking you up? Are the fortresses in your heart beginning to topple? The lie of the indulgence, the pride, and also the lie about God himself. You have to know that he loves you. You have to know that he wants you back. I want us to bow our heads now and pray. Joel, would you come and lead us in a response of worship? In a moment or two, we're going to have a chance as we have this song to just very personally respond to God. Those of you who are with us via the live stream, this will, the live stream will end at the end of this song. just want to let you know that. But right now, this is our moment for response. It's God awakening you. 
Is this crisis an opportunity for real and lasting change in your life? Let's come to him and pray. Father, I know that there is not a person among us who doesn't understand, who doesn't identify with, who doesn't recognize the journey that this boy took from our own personal experience. Sometimes it was a moment of of wickedness in our lives. Sometimes it was a season, a drawn out season. Sometimes it's been a whole way of life. Lord, I want to ask you by the power of your spirit to give us the gift of spiritual awakening now. So that those who have been pursuing this pathway away from you and into darkness will begin to see for the first time how attractive the light is. Yes, the journey back might require this humbling but Lord we pray you'll give us the gift of humility the gift of faith the gift to believe that we can come back to you and know your love for us I want to pray for our church family how easily as Jesus put it the sheep can go astray from the flock Lord we're so aware of the fragmenting nature of the season we're in and how easily it would how easy it would be for individuals to fall away from you because Lord no one's watching God, I, I plead with you. I want to ask, Lord, with all my heart, Lord, that you will bring back those who have wandered away. And I ask, Lord, also that in your providence, as you have brought about various people who have never known you to come and listen to this message today and hear the teaching of Jesus. I pray, great physician, will you do a, a work of your surgery on hearts today to bring about transformation and change? I ask these things in the name of your Son, Lord. We love you. We're grateful for your work in our lives. Amen.